The views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the views of Cleveland State University, and my participation in this podcast is separate from my roles there as associate lecturer and director of the school psychology program. Further, this podcast is for educational use only and should not be considered professional advice. Welcome back, listeners, to the Handsful Parenting Podcast. Thanks for joining us for another Handsful Parenting Podcast. I'm here once again with my co-host, Knight of the Order of Chivalry, Axel Balsa Danzi. Guess it, Che. Guess it, Patrick. ¿Cómo estás? Should we continue in Spanish? Bien. No, English, por favor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, sorry, in this segment, I like to call What's Up With That? I want Axel to tell us about Argentinian pizza, specifically a monstrosity that uh, is known as fugaceta. Did mm. I pronounce it correctly, Axel? Yes, you did. You did. What is well, up with that? Well, you, you're a frater. You're you're half Italian, right? Or 100% Italian descent. So you got to know a little bit Italian. about it. Yes. Okay. Well, the problem with Argentina is that it's a, it's a mix with a lot of Italian immigrants. Uh, my wife is 100% descent of Italians, for example. And um, so many of the customs that came to Argentina at the beginning of the 20th century were slightly modified uh, by people who came. I, of course, they took the trip and everything like going to America because they were starving in Europe. And they found a, a country of abundance, right? Where, where food was plenty. So some monstrosities happened, especially regarding food. And pizza is one of them. I'm told that if you go to, to, to Italy this day, pizza is something without a lot of cheese. I mean, it has, you know, just the right amount for them. But there is, in Argentina, there's like many places where you can find uh, that, that uh, a whole... Uh, circle of pizza, papaya pizza, may contain a kilo of mozzarella. What's that? What's a kilo in pounds? 2.2 pounds. Okay, yes. <laughs> Actually, there's there's a, a documentary in Netflix called Somebody Feed Phil. Yes. Yeah, well, he has a, a chapter in Argentina and he goes to a pizza place that was six blocks away from my home. It's called La Meseta. And that's a very famous place where they had, so, so you end up with a big pie with a very thick layer of cheese, a mozzarella cheese, very greasy, oily, right? And onions, because that's yeah. what uh, fugaceta is about. It's uh, really more uh, onions. Is it crust and or is the cheese on top? Well, you can have fugaceta rellena. So that's what you were talking about. Yes. On top of that, <laughs> 2.2 pounds inside the, the, the pie, you will find a feeling of more mozzarella and maybe ham, for example. Mm. So the, the bread is just an excuse to eat a ton of cheese right away. So first question. Yeah. You, well, maybe this isn't a question. Yeah. So you never would eat this on a date, right? Like... <laughs> <laughs> onions in a giant quantity of cheese that just sounds like a disaster of a date <laughs> no i think i mean if both of you have it it's not a problem at all you are let's consider then if, if it's a date then you kiss for the first time you're continuing expanding on the taste of cheese and that's something a country onion. of italian descent may may find very very pleasant you know yeah, onions and cheese. What's wrong with that? It's fantastic, fantastic taste. Um, and second, maybe this is just a comment, but the antacid industry in Argentina must love fugaceta <laughs> because there's no way you get heartburn after you eat that um, or you get sent right to the hospital. Well, this is, this is you know, the problem with, I'm sorry to use a term that may sound racist, you know, you Americans. That you keep, <laughs> you Americans keep blaming fat for your stomach problems. And the problem is sugar. You don't drink that with 
a bunch of uh, sugar uh, drink. You just drink it with soda, you know, uh, water with gas. How do you call that? Um, club soda, is that how you call it over there? Oh, we just maybe like, mm, I don't know, gasified mineral water. Okay, that's it. Soda. Maybe with wine, okay? And wine goes perfect for this. And uh, yeah, you may get a little bit of a, I don't know, make it sleepy with it. But no, you don't get a, a heartburn. No, no, no. That's the problem with sugar, not with fat. Fat And that fat cooked that way, it really suits you well. Agreed. You may gain two or three pounds and, you know. Agree to disagree. That's Man was not made to, meant to eat a kilo of, of mozzarella. Anyway, we're moving on from this. Agree okay. to disagree about fugacetta. Yes. Woo. Um, so last week we talked about preparing to discipline. So getting on the same page with your partner, talking about disciplining strategies, examining your moral weaknesses, considering your moral compass, uh, the limits of behavior with uh, in your, your own house and, and the purpose of misbehavior. So this week, as I mentioned, we're finally going to talk about healthy alternatives to punishment. We're going to discuss behaviorism. Um, also teaching strategies that, that I would consider the aspirational targets of discipline, like, okay, what uh, uh, is the ideal? What is the type of discipline that we actually want to strive for? Uh, so we're, we're finally going to get to that. And, and so the first thing I want to talk about is behaviorism, because we're going to be talking about positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement and the difference between the two. And so we should know where this whole idea of behaviorism comes from. Uh, and it's the idea uh, initially came from uh, Ivan Pavlov, who worked with classical conditioning um, with dogs when he realized that uh, that they would salivate when when they would um, have you know be introduced to a particular smell and then he could associate with different sounds and whatnot. B.F. Skinner, a psychologist in the United States, picked up on that um, idea and expanded it um, to basically not create behaviorism, but understand the existence of behaviorism and how it works and how it operates so that we could manipulate or manage behavior using various techniques. One of Skinner's techniques was positive reinforcement um, and a very powerful technique. And it's basically positively reinforcing good behavior. And so the way that you would use this with children is that you would try to positively reinforce their positive behavior um, more than their um, negative behavior, that, that you would punish their negative behavior or, or bring up their negative behavior. So for instance, a ratio in a number of research studies of five to one is what is recommended to uh, increase the behaviors that you wanna see, and that means five positive reinforcements uh, of behavior versus one uh, punishment or reprimand, however you want to consider that. So uh, one thing to remember though, when we are positively reinforcing kids is, is that uh, we need to do it right after we see the behavior. Hey, and so we can't wait, there can't be a lag time in waiting between the behavior and the positive reinforcement. And, and what is a positive reinforcement? We mean things like, oh, great job. Oh, I really like the way that you did that. Oh, I, I, that was so cool how you, you know, went up to him and you asked him his name and then you introduced yourself and you asked him if he wanted to play. So getting specific about uh, what you're reinforcing. So you want to reinforce immediately. There can't be a lag time because then the child won't associate the behavior with the reinforcement. And you ideally want to do it intermittently. You want to uh, not do it every time. And, and so, so whereas we, we often, as we talked about in our attention-seeking podcast, say, great job after everything our children do, I wouldn't really consider that a reinforcement because kids don't really register it as anything but um, an affirmation of what they've done. A positive reinforcement is more specific to a behavior and is also based on a child actually understanding that they did something well. Now, an intermittent reinforcement, um, I think, for a child's positive behavior could be not reinforcing something in, in a really positive way every time, because for instance, if you go to a slot machine 
and you pull that slot machine every time and a giant you know, uh, pile of money comes, comes to you every time, it gets boring. It's not exciting. But if once in a blue moon, you get a giant uh, you know, cascade of, of gold coins, uh, you're more likely to continue to pull that lever. So if every now and then our child, um, we, we reinforce them for a positive behavior by doing something big, by taking them out for ice cream or you know, uh, buying them a really cool dessert or some sort of cool positive reinforcement, that's likely to be more effective in promoting the sorts of behavior that we want to promote than is reinforcing them every time um, they do something great in a like really big, fantastic way. You know, um, let me jump in here. I, I'm guessing now I'm curious, um, is behaviorism considered negative in the US by parents or people raising kids? I think it's a polarizing subject. Some mm. folks think that behaviorism is the be all end all be all and, and in psychology as well and in school psychology, certainly there are behaviorists and there are folks who are more on the holistic end of things. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, the, I think that it is seen as the most scientific research based method of managing and manipulating mm. behavior. Um, mm. But it, it is also seen as as cold and um Uh, not functioning as well, especially with kids with uh, severe emotional disturbances, although it's oftentimes used for kids with autism here. Yes, yes, because I, I want to, uh, I mean, I'm considering some of our listeners will be already panicking that we are endorsing behavior as a technique, especially if they are from South America. You know, here in Argentina and Uruguay, that technique is seen as a very negative. I, I, I'm usually on the other end here trying to compensate things, but it's fair to point out some of the problems with, it, with, with this approach, right? So, so it's, a it's applied carefully because, I mean, maybe some, some of you have seen the movie about the... Well, now this movie is famous for other reasons, but the movie about the, the Serena Williams' dad, King Richard. I've not seen it, but heard about it, yeah. You've heard about it because of the slap of, uh, of um, Will Smith, right? Exactly, yes. <laughs> that, that went all around the world. We saw it here. And, um, but, but really what the movie shows is that, I mean, the, show, the movie in a way proves behaviorism uh, in saying... A, a father, a mother determined to model a child's behavior can do it. And that's what uh, I thought it was Watson who said it, uh, but I probably was Skinner, as you say. We'll have to double check that or, or just leave it. But what those initial uh, uh, founders of, of uh, behaviorism did, you know, said, so we, 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 we can give me two children and, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll determine their fates by what stimulus I give them. Now, people who, who, who contradict, who criticize this technique, they say, yeah, well, what you get is a good behavior. This is the behavior you want. That doesn't mean the child is going to be happy. He may continue with that behavior, but you may, you may turn his life miserable. And I think that could be the point to argue with the Williams sisters. I mean, yes, they are rich. They are successful. Are they happy? Right? Maybe, maybe the father had listened to what they wanted to do instead of pushing so hard and so, so strongly into one direction, he thought it was good for them. Maybe today they were, I don't know, school teachers, and they were not as successful, as happy, as uh, rich, but they were, they maybe be happier or artists or whatever, right? So I think most of the parents are aware, of, be aware of that. And we need to include this technique in our wider approach. We, we are saying, okay, once you've, you're in contact with your own, reality you you've paid attention to your child you've listened to it you realize this is something he needs to learn not because i want to but because it's good for them then we have this technique available and i, I think that's what you're you're pointing out and probably you don't need to to make that clarification there but i'm telling you in south america this is a very sensitive point and it has even political reasons because since the U.S., and this is part of our international outlook, <laughs> political, since the U.S. is usually perceived as um, an empire, it's like an empire in denial, right? It's an empire that doesn't admit it's an empire, and the cultural influence is so hard, 
all psychological influences that come from the US are seen with distrust. So when the US exported this version of education to the third world and say, hey, we can change the habits of people, the habits of consumers, and we can turn them all into Hollywood lovers. Hey, why not? And actually they did. <laughs> it's a success. We watch 100% Hollywood movies. But, um, but then now parents say, yeah, but was that really good for us? I mean, yeah, the technique really worked. Marketing really works. I mean, the fact that you understand the psychology of something is not good. Now, when you do marketing to promote a good cause, like, for example, the, 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 the I don't know, for me, a good cause is vaccination. <laughs> this is still a controversial subject. But if you want to promote everybody getting a vaccine, then I guess it's good. But you're still modifying other people's behavior. So there's a certain morality involved in that. And I, I just want our listeners to know that we are sensitive to that. And that it's a tool, like anything, that cannot bypass conscience. So you, you got to decide when are you going to use this behaviorist tool, because they actually do work, as you said. They are very, very effective, right? There's a ton of, of, of science behind it. And I, when I've tried it myself, I'm really stunned. So I said, well, this in good hands is great, but if the, if the father or the mother hasn't taken the time to say, do I want to change this behavior? Or maybe I should just listen to this behavior and change my approach. And yeah, just yeah. to introduce a moral problem here. Yes, because that is that is your job, just, <laughs> just to throw a <laughs> wrench in, in everything and make us think, Axel. And I appreciate that. <laughs> no, but I think that you know what we are presenting to our listeners is an all hands on deck approach. I mean, we want to know about every tool in the kit, right? And we want to know its implications of using it and whether it works. Um, but to know, like, for instance, given the choice between a harsh punishment or yelling, is positive reinforcement better? I would argue, yes. Is it yeah. better than other forms of discipline? Definitely. And it's very important that they know that actually punishment, negative, doesn't work, does not change the behavior. So scientifically, that's completely a waste of time. The other one has a moral connotation. Why, when are we going to apply this very interesting psychological tool? But the other one just doesn't work. So we are wasting our time. We are hurting our children and we're not getting any changes. So that is the, the important side of knowing how behavioral science works. And so I might qualify having, having said all this, I allow you to continue. <laughs> you know, I had to do my, my moral uh, disclosure. Yes. Yeah, I might qualify that by saying that punishment can work in the moment sometimes, but it does not produce long-term changes. Whereas that's, positive that's, reinforcement... That's, yeah could very well create long-term changes, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and you can shift, like, especially with attention-seeking, you could shift the behaviors. If And this, this is difficult for parents to catch kids being good, you know? Mm. And uh, especially if they've gotten into the pattern or routine of only seeing the negative of their child, you know, and already being frustrated and just being focused on that. It mm. requires a, a difficult shift for parents with positive uh, reinforcement is not always that easy to, to just say, okay, what well, I'm, I'm just going to start focusing on the good, you, you know? So, so for instance, in, in our world, you know, I address attention seeking in my family, you, you know, and, and, and I realized that it's not always just the specific behaviors that, that are positive attention seeking that a child does that, that need to be reinforced, but just looking for whatever a child might be good at that you can reinforce. Like for instance, Henry, like this was his summer of swimming. I know it's winter down there, so you can't relate, but we had some <laughs> awesome cool days. And all of a sudden, like he had been in like those little puddle jumper floaties uh, that you're probably familiar with for the longest time, not interested at all in swimming. But all of a sudden, something happened this summer. And he was doing this like butterfly swimming motion natural in the pool and I would like try to get away from him and he would catch up to me he's just like a natural swimmer and so like we started like really reinforcing that and making him feel this identity of like I'm good at something I'm getting all this positive attention for being good at something and so I think that you know folks need to realize that that finding something that your child is good at is a way of positively reinforcing them and shifting their um, identity and their sense of, I only get yelled at uh, mm -hmm. for things that I do wrong, or I'm someone who does something wrong to, I'm someone who 
make it in trouble sometimes, but I also am really good at this. And I get a lot of positive attention for these other things that I do in my life. And every kid has those. And it's just a matter of exploring, discovering, and, and really um, pointing out to your child that, wow, you're really good at that. That's impressive. You know, and, and that can really turn the tide. Uh, I yes. Let, let's say that it's very important to manage this tool to break the vicious circle. Because what happens is that a child becomes, let's say, um, misbehaves in some way at home. He yells at dinner every time and we yell back or we scold him or say, no, no, wouldn't. And we say, we can't stand you. Just go away, go to your room, do what all the things we, we, we know that they don't, they don't work in the long term. They don't help the child change because the only thing he, he gets is um, more attention in a way, perverse more attention, but not really uh, uh, teaching on what it would be good for him, what would be more enjoyable for him. The kid naturally enjoys disrupting because it's you know just a natural way of letting energy flow out. Nobody has taught him anything. And obviously this is something he hasn't been able to, to imitate from, from adults. I mean, he doesn't catch it. He doesn't get that this will be a good behavior. That's why he's doing it. That's the only reason. So he's doing, and when we just like blame him and, 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 and do everything that we were talking about, this negative, uh, we, we are just not showing him a way out. We're just punishing him and make him feel worse, make him more as unstable. And so probably the, 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 the probable outcome will be that he will continue with that behavior, maybe slightly different, but not better. Not in a way, we, maybe it will be worse because now he doesn't shout, but he's angry at dinner and he doesn't communicate. So you need, to, you need to teach the child what's expected. So when you are guided by the principles of, of, of that science studied behaviorism, then you say, okay, I got to jumpstart my kid on something positive. So even, even what, if he does something very, very small that is good, and like the moment he sits on the table, before he, he even has a chance to shout, you say, hey, great, you're sitting here quietly. Maybe this was fantastic. Maybe we can talk about it. How about it? So the child gets reinforced for something he actually didn't do. He, he didn't perform a great effort, but he gets a sign. Oh, okay, I'm going the right way. So you as an adult, like you act both parts right? You, you take both roles. And say, so tell me something about school today. Was it good? No, I hated it. Oh, really? Yeah, I hated school when I was a kid. You don't go for other things. Now you're not trying to teach him to love school. You're just trying to teach him good communication. And then you reinforce it. Hey, I love it when we, we can talk it like this. And you're talking, you're not shouting, you're emphasizing and you're doing all that. And that's great. Now, that would I would call that step one, break the vicious circle, use behavioral tools. But what Folks down south would criticize of me saying all of this, <laughs> and you, of course, crucify you as an American conqueror into our culture. <laughs> you know, they would say, yeah, but you know what you're doing? You're teaching your kid that you have to do things so you make everybody else happy. So you're teaching him that the most important thing is to get a positive reinforcement from outside. That means if when he finds people that don't love him, doesn't love him as much, then he may become depressed or violent, right? And this is, uh, I mean, connecting with what we're talking in our episode of, of uh, school violence. Many times it's, we've taught kids, children, adolescents so much that about the importance of external approval that we create people who cannot stand alone. So we don't want to break that. So after you've achieved step one and you have, uh, you have a, a child that sits quietly and is trying to fit in because it's good, then you got to move to step two. And step two is finding the positive reinforcement in the behavior itself. So this is a tricky part. This is where most parents don't know how to move on to that. But how do you transmit to a child the, the, the joy of having a pleasant conversation at the table without you being the enforcer. How yeah. do you, right? Yeah. I hear yeah. you with that question to you. <laughs> well, I think that, that we may get to that as we move to some of the other forms of discipline. Um, Great. So you're, you're segging us there, but I, I want to um, just 
just quickly sort of wrap up our positive reinforcement by saying, if you're going to do it, like I agree, break the cycle with it. It's powerfully effective. It does uh, require a shift in attention for parents, but once you do it, it can it can be very helpful and and intermittently uh, reinforce in in big ways, and then make sure that you reinforce immediately. You can't say, "Oh, in a week we'll do this because you did this." There will be no, no connection to the behavioral, and and it's it's it'll be a wasted reinforcement. So intermittent, do it immediately. Uh, use it to break the cycle, but don't do it all the time because, like you said, we want to transition to something that is more about intrinsic motivation uh, and not just this external reward, which will eventually allow the child to have that internal moral compass and to be more satisfied uh, with their their own life because they'll they'll be internally driven as as opposed to externally driven, which is something they are out of that's out of their control. If if someone wants to go deeper, there's a very good book called I think it's the Kaczynski method uh, for the defined child, where, where where that's fully detailed on how to escalate on different type of rewards. You have the immediate reward, the weekly reward. So you have after every action you want to uh, stress positively, then you have a daily reward, and then you have a weekly reward, and how to move away from food and toys as rewards into meaningful activities uh, as as a, a, a night out with both parents or a moment of playing the game with dad that sometimes he doesn't take the time to do it or you know doing something together you can build it into a positive thing that is not related to food and toys which are okay at the beginning to break yeah. the vicious circle but you need to move away from them but that book is a complete method so for anyone who wants to read it and wants to start by this I truly recommend it because I've, I've read it and I put it into practice. I got to admit, now I'm going to be banned from all my uh, Argentinian societies of education, but I'm a secret admirer of behaviorism. So so um, let's talk about negative reinforcement. Uh, negative yeah. reinforcement is not punishment. Psychology 101. Negative reinforcement is the removal of a negative stimulus in response uh, to a targeted behavior. So, uh, so for instance, um, your bedtime might be extended in response to your siblings who are kind to each other because you're trying to get them uh, to be kind to each other. So you're saying, okay, we're gonna take away this negative early bedtime. We can extend the bedtime. Uh, for instance, um, another example, if you eat this broccoli, you won't have to wash dishes and taking away that negative stimulus. Uh, if you finish your homework, you don't have to go to the grocery store with me. Um, so this assumes that parents are imposing on a regular basis some sort of some sort of servitude or negative stimulus on their children. Maybe some parents don't. Maybe some parents don't have some sort of regular, um, you know, negative thing that their parent has to do. But you, you know, homework, for example, uh, could be an you know, could 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 be an example of, of, of this. Yes, maybe especially because you need you you need to realize that whatever you're placing as the consequence of the intended behavior change, then you are affecting that too. So if going to the grocery is something you can avoid by eating broccoli, you are telling your child going to the grocery is something negative per se. So then in the future you're you're gonna want him to go to the to the store and in his mind this will be connected with something else hey why why i ate all my broccoli yeah, yeah but it's necessary for the family for you to help out go to the to the store right so you got to be very careful what you're 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 attaching a negative uh connotation to because it ends up being that way if it's something you can get away from then you gotta be careful right yeah yeah exactly all right, so now let's move on from our behaviorism discussion. These two tools, like I said, these are all tools uh, that have you know, consequences, downstream effects. Well, let's move to positive discipline, something that I would say is more aspirational that, that we want to ideally strive towards. So positive discipline is, is a general category that would include helping kids uh, develop problem solving skills, that, that sort of internal ability to have this dialogue to say, okay, here's this issue. I'm not gonna go to my parents um, all the time to get me to help. 
to, to help me out, I'm going to try to uh, undergo this process on my own to figure this out. So in this case, discipline is about teaching, teaching kids uh, how to develop their own processes and their own skills uh, for dealing with issues. Um, so it would include explaining um, situations, uh, supplying language uh, for them to help understand situations and emotions, helping them to get in touch with their feelings, helping them to understand uh, empathy, um, someone else's feelings from, from their uh, point of view, uh, and then helping them to, to ride out tantrums um, so that they can understand how one goes from a heightened state of emotion to bringing themselves down to a more normal level uh, with, without you know, extending that long term. Do you have any, any practical advices on how to go about that? Well, I think that as you mentioned in previous episode, or as we mentioned in previous episode, a lot of it derives from the parents' energy that they begin with. Because to approach a, a disciplinary issue, you know, something that your child does, hitting some other child, for instance, you have to be in a place not to react, first of all. So that's number one. Uh -huh. um, number two, I think, is, is that you have to have... Uh, reacted or, or not reacted to the point where you can process intelligently, you know, with higher order thinking, what mm. is going on so that you are able to uh, approach your child in a rational way um, to have a conversation about this. So let's say they hit another child on a playground, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of parents might yell um, and say the child's name again and again, patch, patch, patch. I think a parent who is using positive discipline might go up to their child uh, and might initially to diffuse the situation, um, put their hand gently on their child and look at the child they hit and say, oh, I'm so sorry that, that, he, uh, that, that uh, you know, my son hit you. He's very sorry for that, you know, as opposed to trying to get him to say sorry, because that's something that I see doesn't work. Parents go up to the kid and say, tell him you're sorry. You know, the kid's a little bit defiant. No, I'm not going to tell them I'm sorry. So you sit there and it's embarrassing for the parent and it's a struggle for the kid because they're being defiant and the child never says sorry. The parent gets more angry. So instead, the parent says it for the child. Oh, he's so sorry. He just did that. He got upset um, and he's going to do better next time. And then um, removing the child from the situation, maybe taking their hand and walking them gently away um, to some place um, where you can sit and not immediately try to engage the, con the child in conversation because you have to realize that there's a heightened mood, but then um, begin talking and saying, hey, I realized you were frustrated because they were on uh, that ride that you wanted to get on and you wanted to be on it too. So they wouldn't get off. So you hit them, you know, is that what happened? And, you know, lots of times I think that if the child is in a, a lowered state of emotion, they will say, yeah, that's exactly what happened. You know, um, and you could say, you know, what you could have done is to say, um, you know, I would really like a turn on that. Um, do you think I could take my turn uh, and see what happens? Do you think you could try that next time? Mm -hmm. So, and they may not say, yes, I will do that next time, but at least you're planting a seed in them and supplying them with a way to problem solve socially a situation. Hmm. You know, I, I was thinking about what you were saying first about the state of the adult is one thing I, I was listening the other day is about how our brain works. And it's very interesting because we've heard about this technique, maybe you've heard about it uh, called um, mirroring, you know, when you want to generate empathy with someone that you, you, you they talk about FBI interviews or so on, that you, you just repeat what they say and you sort of stand in the same way the other person is. And so the person subconsciously feels start stops feeling you as a threat and starts empathizing with you but there's also true that that our our brain is trained to mimic so if someone enters with a with a very strong and negative attitude to a place you become the same way it puts you in the same mood right and vice versa so I would, I would, I would, I wanted to enlarge on this because we, we said, okay, what would be the adult thing? If your child is in rage and your 
imitation mechanism kicks in and you become enraged too, then you're not helping. Now, if you have the power to detach yourself from that reaction, be really actually, I mean, truly calm and stay in front of your child calm, like transmitting with all your being, there is no drama. Really, there is no drama with the boy taking your ball or taking your place in the ride. And there is no drama with you being throwing a tantrum here. There is no drama. You know, drama is either of us dying or being, being, getting hit by a car, being sick. That's, this is not a drama. This is life. Let's deal with it. And um, as, as, as loving human beings, let's say, not as adults, as loving human beings, because a child can become a, human, a loving human being in two seconds, and he doesn't need to be an adult for that, right? The adult is the one that has maybe the biggest chances of reverting this mechanism. So, I mean, I just wanted to add this piece of neuroscience to what you were saying, and so that, that we get more convinced, because it's so hard for us to resign that initial reaction right when the kid hits another one and you got to sit with him and in a way you're just holding it because you want to beat your own child for beating that little kid and making him cry or whatever right it's like you're you're, you're fighting against injustice in your own child and that's not going to work now um, i you know i'm personally not a fan but i don't have much of a this is just let's agree to disagree as with the <laughs> With the fugazeta of the parents saying sorry for the child, I don't know why I don't like it, but I cannot justify it. I, I what I do like, and maybe I don't know if it works, is uh, all the time. But it's to wait and do all this conversation that you were saying, helping the child understand and uh, and helping. Him, hey, how do you think the other child feels and so on? And when the child is ready, say, do you want to go say apologize, say sorry? And go with the child, yeah, help and support that, and just, you know, accompany him. Not as you should say sorry, because that's not going to work. With, and that part I agree. But if you do the, all the work that you did at the beginning and you allow the child to go, it's the part of the atonement, you know? Last, last week we were with, at a, at a, at a, we were on the street with some friends, and a, and a friend of my son had a Coke in his backpack, right? And my son tried to play with it and just took it. He was not really going to steal it. He was just playing, hey, I'm going to steal it, but accidentally dropped it and all the Coke went to the street, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, so my child was in shock, but in a way he was like, it's not my fault. Didn't do it on purpose, you know? Yeah. So the other guy went away and, 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 and my child was really troubled. So I said, I had several things in my mind, but I wanted to say, I need to understand him that he's accountable for it, even though he didn't mean to do any harm. Because playing with someone else's things involves a danger. And if you go down that path, things may happen. If you borrow your dad's car, I want to teach him now that he's six. And you may not intend to crash it, but you might. So you better ask for it. You know, there is a lesson there. But I didn't want him also to just go there and apologize. It didn't feel it, it was empty. In that way, I'm, I agree with you. So I said, okay, let's, let's go get him a new one. So we went to the store, we bought a new one. We took a DX or we lost some time, both of us, because we were going to the park. And he, he was carrying the guy, I said, now, now you can take the Coke and just give it back to him and say, you're sorry. I don't know if he said it or not, but he said he was very ashamed, but he gave the Coke. And after he gave the Coke to the child, the other child, seeing him, he was in remorse, gave him a high five and they became friends again, right? But that took a lot of, a lot of process of, you know, talking about it, which involved him in the end dealing along with the child. So that's, I don't know, I, don't, I just wanted to, to put that, if you can achieve your child to actually want to make amends, then it's even better than not saying anything. I hope there's a Coca-Cola executive, like marketing executive <laughs> listening, because they're like, I have the idea for my next commercial. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm so sorry, I cannot name a local brand of Coke or cola that we like, you know, like they have in Iran or <laughs> Venezuela. But now we are Coca-Cola lovers. Yes. Okay. We, this is how far. Yeah. American I would agree with you. Ideally the, you know, child needs to take onus, you know, responsibility for their actions and, you know, say that they're sorry. A lot of kids are just so uh, resistant to it though. Sometimes I just don't like to push it. Um, no, no. Yeah. I agree with you. Don't push it. But if you can get to it genuinely, 
and you can get your child to do that. Yeah. You give him a, a true relief of his soul because he had now, he knows, a child knows when he has hurt another one and has not made amends and when they have. Mm-hmm. And when they have is so wonderful. So I strive for that. Sometimes it's not possible and I just let it go. I prefer not to push it. But, uh, but if it's possible, oh, I think it liberates a, a child when a child has done something wrong, right? Not when they was a child's play. Sorry, I think we, we took too long on this. So, so um, I last thing I want to say about positive discipline, though, is that a lot about a lot of this is teaching the child how to problem solve, like I said, and supplying a thought process uh, around problem solving and around their own feelings and around having empathy for others. But we can't just do this with them. We need to model this. I think that's a good preventative technique. You, you know, we, we can work with our kids to address their conflicts in this way. But if we're not modeling that with our partners, with our other children, mm-hmm. with people yeah. that we interact with on a regular basis, what they're actually seeing is, okay, maybe he's telling me this in this situation, but it's not what he does, you know, or mm-hmm. it's not what she does. So that's why we need to focus in all aspects of our life. And, and here we go again, talking about uh, self-development and parenting and how the more we develop ourselves, the more everything else just naturally falls into place because that modeling aspect is probably our most powerful teaching mechanism as our prob- most powerful discipline in a technique. Yes, and I, I want to, to add to these things that you're saying that what I would enclose them all in, we are teaching our child to digest life because life experiences need to be digested. And it's so sad that nowadays we only assign that, that, that task for therapy, right? So mm-hmm. therapists are the only ones who, who have to carry the whole weight of society of digesting human life. So you get a, you're grieving, you got to go to a grief counselor. You have problems in school, you go to a, a school psychology. You have problems with your couple, you have to... But, you know, human interaction should be in a way that you can digest life with more people than just a professional therapist. Of course, there are cases where that is required, but your parents as a child are essential in teaching you that. And so you're modeling, you're modeling to the child, you're not alone in this and you're not supposed to. Yes, you're having a crisis. The guy pushed you on the middle of a soccer match and he was your friend, but he pushed you and he hurt you. How are you gonna solve that? And it's a great opportunity. So digesting afterwards, is very important. Even if the, the relationship with the kid is okay, you know, you're back home, you're at dinner. You don't want him to shout at dinner, but are you engaging in a meaningful conversation? Say, hey, how did you feel about that? Hey, it was not fair. Okay, but have you seen soccer matches that happens all the time? Or yeah, sometimes people do things unfair. Can you can you forgive him? Do you think he had felt remorse? Do you think he did it on purpose? I mean, there are so all sorts of sorts of questions to talk about it. Just, you know, just talk about it. Maybe you cannot provide an answer. Maybe sometimes I tell to my child, yeah, yeah, that kid was mean to you. Sometimes people are mean. What can I tell you? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry with you. I'm suffering with you. And I saw it when he hit you. And I, you know, I wanted to do something about it. But just that, it's a lot. So post-processing, it's a lot. But, uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen this show, Formula One on Netflix. It's about the Formula One. Yeah, I've heard about it. Not seen it. Oh, it's it's fantastic. If you want, just catch it. Well, this is very typical of a dad show, right? We're talking about yeah. cars now. What else? I'm going to talk about strip yes. clubs. This is so such a cliche. Okay. Now, but seriously, every time they, they finish a race, they show you how they talk about the race. And you see the difference in different teams. You know, some teams are just blaming each other. Yeah, well, the car was not good. Well, no, the driving, the drivers, the mechanics, everybody's there. And some teams are trying to find, hey, what happened? And that makes a lot of difference. So we, I, I, th- I like to think of this as this post-talk. This happens in all sports, right? I don't, I don't know why I'm bringing Formula One, but it happens in soccer, yeah. right? You, the debrief, the, looking at the tape, you know, is what yeah. they call afterwards, you know, like watching, exactly. watching the game and talking about, you know, debriefing. Yeah, exactly. If you take it as a time to learn, it's great. If you take it as a time of, we shouldn't do this, of, of a judgmental, of a post-mortem judge, a final day judge, judgment, no, that's not good. But, but, but just looking at life, it's, you know, we're living this life together. We're a family. Let's talk about it. What a wonderful analogy. Actually, I never thought about it like that, that, that you're looking at the tape after the game and you're debriefing about 
and processing about what happened and reflecting on what you could do better next time. I mean, that's what winners do. Yeah, exactly. Americans understand that. Um, I understand that. Hey, thank you for that analogy. Um, Let's move on to gender discipline. This is one of my favorites. Mm. Um, It includes distraction and redirection and like the use of humor, which is kind of a method of distraction. But uh, my brother-in-law, I was lucky enough to have four older siblings who all had children before me. And I got to watch them all raising their kids and some of them quite closely. And I was a school psychologist practicing for a lot of that time. And my brother-in-law, I think, is one of the best dads that I've ever witnessed. I hope he's listening to this so that, you know, mm-hmm. we can see this ad- adulation, Ed Fredo Sweeney. And we just, he's, he tried, he worked so hard at it, spent so much time with his kids and was skilled. And he was particularly good at distraction. And at one point in time, he said to me, parenting is the art of distraction, and I took that to heart and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And, and so his kids would get upset and he would point something out. Oh my gosh, look at that cloud. That's amazing. You see the shape of it? And so they would go from crying, you know, the tears would still be rolling down their head and their face would immediately change, you know, and mm-hmm. it would shift to, uh, you know, more normal state just almost instantaneously. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. That's all you have to do. And I, it's, it seemed kind of cheap at first to me. Maybe the behavior is, you know, people hating behaviorism would be like, no, you have to let them feel their emotions. But why do you have to let them feel their emotions? I would say, no, you don't. Not all emotions need to be indulged in. Mm -hmm. You can, I mean, if it's something that requires a learning experience on top of that, maybe you'd like to process it. But if it's uh, something like um, they fell and they hurt themselves or they got into a conflict with you know, their sister or something like that, that, that doesn't really require a, a looking at the tape afterwards, then mm-hmm. you can distract. You can use your power of looking around to something they might find interesting um, and distracting them so that they can change their, 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 their mood quickly uh, and move on uh, with, with the rest of the day. Well, if, if, you, if you feel guilty about using the magic trick, <laughs> that's what magicians do all well, the they, time, right? They, 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 they of hand. It's, um, but, but you recognize and you agree that sometimes the, part, the problem is that kids are paying too much attention to something that is not that important, right? Like something very minimal that happened to them, that now they're making a fuzz about it. And you say, you're, you're missing the whole birthday party because there's one candle missing? Really? <laughs> you know, you yeah. cannot do that because life's short. But then I think what I would recommend to ease the guilt of pulling that trick, which is very useful, is why don't point out to something that is actually meaningful? Like I, I remember my my when my my little boy was was very young and he would cry sometimes for you know throwing a tantrum and I would try this. I would go outside and I would point at the stars, right? I said, look at the stars. Look at so, and I would start talking to him about the stars and about how far, how millions of them, and how, and and he would start being fascinated by that. It was not just me pulling his attention away from the tantrum reason; I was just opening his mind to something truly fantastic and far more important than the the minimal thing that was going on with him, like giving him them some perspective. Or if you're if you're in a football match or soccer match, as you call it, is like, and the guy falls, hey, get up, get up. The match goes on. You cannot get stuck there because you know they're going coming from the goal. Go, 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 go. And yeah. the child connects himself, but you're not distracting him, pulling a trigger. You're just pointing to him the real nature of things. You know, mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. is so that that could be maybe more meaningful to some parents, and I think it's perfectly legitimate. You're teaching a yeah. very valuable lesson, you know? Yeah. You're not going to spoil the whole vacation because the hotel didn't have the window where you thought it was in the picture. I mean, okay, you're there. Relax, my friend. <laughs> yeah, <and there's laughs> Look at the whole city. Yes, there's so much beauty in nature, I think, to point out. And it mm. is an opportunity to, to point out nature. And I, and I think when you do point out nature, I mean, there are bugs crawling all over the place, you know, yeah. that you can point uh, kids to and to kind of pay attention to. And, the, and kids love bugs. Uh, and but you're you're pointing out uh, the natural world, and I think you're bringing them into the moment, you know, mm. and, and sort of teaching a, a sort of mindfulness technique inadvertently yeah. to say, well, when I'm really upset like this, 
I can focus on something in nature and shift my attention to like the here and now, as opposed to this internal dialogue or pain that I'm feeling um, as a technique, as a way of uh, feeling better. Yeah. 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 So uh, distraction, so powerful. And like you mentioned, I appreciate it again, uh, can be meaningful if we mm. redirect to something that is more meaningful uh, and, and natural. I uh, also want to talk about boundary-based discipline. Uh, we've kind of alluded to this already. It's about setting limits. Like you can't play video games until you finish your homework. It's sort of a, a natural um, way of doing things, a, a cause and effect. Um, when you do this, you get this. Um, one could argue, I guess, that it's maybe an extension of the economic system. You know, if you do something, then you get paid. Uh, so it's a, it's a bit behavioristic, um, but I guess you could think of it as sort of natural consequences as well. As long as you make the effort of linking the consequence to the cause in a reasonable way, you gotta, you gotta know that you're teaching something with everything. So if you say, if you finish your homework, you can eat a ton of candy then you're teaching something there that you might not be valuable. That eating a ton of candy is something desirable. Now, if you say, as you were saying, hey, there is a time before dinner, I don't have a problem with you playing, but of course, responsibilities come first. After you're done, you get free time. The quicker and better you're done, the more free time you have. It's a logical consequence. That's going to happen all of our lives, right? When we finish what we have to do, we are free to do whatever we want. But so that's that's good. That's okay. So, but we got to be very careful about how we connect things. But cause and consequence, I think, is one of the most powerful things that we can do because actually, what we do is we avoid that development of natural intelligence. I was talking with a mother at school uh, the other day, and she was telling me about this experience she had with her child. She's a, she's a mother, she raises her child alone. And uh, so she had to fold some clothes, right? And the child didn't want to help. And uh, I said, well, we're not gonna, both of us are not gonna watch any movies until we're done, right? Now I was telling her that was great because many mothers, instead of going through that, just say, okay, go watch because I can do it in two minutes alone and faster and quieter. And then I go watch my thing. But by sort of suffering with your child, but being with him in the process, you're teaching him something very valuable, not only that he has to help, but that not helping has consequences and that you're burdening your own mother. And when a child understands this, he and, and she told me that he changed. And, and after a while they were falling close and it was very fun doing it. It was actually probably more fun than watching the Netflix show, right? Because actually folding clothes can be quite fun and quite rewarding. After you're done, you put everything in the cupboard, you're ready. You know, you've done something good for you, for the family. And in that case, you've done something good for your own mother. But mothers usually, and I'm saying, I'm sorry, I mean parents too, we usually hide these consequences of children. And we're doing exactly the opposite. The natural consequences, if the, if the child gets up from the table, you're going to have to, to wash an extra dish and you are going to be extra tired. Why should the child be spared that knowledge? You're withholding, is withholding essential information from him and on how a family works. So then tomorrow he's going to be with a girlfriend. <laughs> he's a man. Uh, and we're connecting with uh, toxic masculinity. And after dinner, he's going to wake up, get up and go to watch the match and not going to help out washing dishes, right? Because you've, that's what you've taught him as a child. So we are teaching all the time about cause and consequences. So sometimes it's just, you know, be alert and make them more evident, but not inventing anything strange. You know, yes. just real, I mean, common sense. Yeah, great points. So um, I want to talk about emotion coaching, another uh, method that I think maybe gets to the point that you were trying to make or, or the, the question that you posed, how do we go from behaviorism, changing behavior and stopping a cycle to working more towards intrinsic motivation for behavior, developing that internal um, you know, compass. And so with emotion coaching, you're helping kids to identify their feelings in various situations. And maybe you 
you're supplying them in those moments with the language of motion and also teaching them to see the perspective of others, to build empathy and to see what others are feeling, to be compassionate uh, and to see how different behaviors that they engage in can lead to different emotions, to see the connection between behavior and emotion. I think when we begin to see the connection between behavior and emotion and what we feel, then we begin to understand intrinsically why we might want to, um, for our own purposes, behave in uh, some ways versus others. Because if we're always just looking for that external reward, uh, we're looking to the outside, but if we're looking to uh, what am I feeling right now? How does this make me feel? Like you said, if we're sitting at the dinner table and we're having a really good conversation, um, is that better than screaming at my sister or, you know, uh, or, or um, trying to get up and causing problems and, and upsetting people by needling them or, or whatever, you know, if I'm paying attention to what actually feels good and feels harmonious, then I will be more likely to behave in that way um, as, in, as compared to if I'm not in touch with my emotions, if I'm not in touch with my feelings, I may not really understand um, what behavior I, I, I want to continue to exhibit. Yes. And I think this brings us to a, to a point that a question we should all ask ourselves. And um, I don't feel um, um, myself being... The, the the best example of this i, th I think I, this is one of the things that i i'm always trying to to improve and i think a lot of our listeners can relate that is if you're talking about that the ultimate reward for good behavior is actually a harmonious um interaction with your family right because that would be a legitimate reason for a child and for an adult and for an adolescent to treat others uh, in the way they would like to treat him. To, to, so we all contribute to living a, a peaceful and happy human moment. And this is what we are deeply wired to do. And rightfully so. It's what, I mean, makes us mammals and makes us humans, right? We've been gathering around fires for thousands of years. And um, the thing is, do we provide our children with enough moments where that can be experienced, right? I was, I was a, an exchange student in, in the U.S. for some time, and the family I was with, and I don't mean to criticize them, but because they were struggling with, with issues, you know, but the fact was that they, they didn't eat dinner together, never. It was like everybody just picked something from the kitchen and went to their own TV and, and watched their TV. And... Uh, um, and I, I felt so strange, you know, coming from a Latin country, this was uh, completely unheard anathema. of. Yeah. Right? Sorry? Anathema. Yeah, exactly. Even, even having dinner with the TV on was, was frowned upon I mean, in, 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 in my family. We, we, it's not that we never did it, but, but it was an exception. It was not that. The, and, um, and I don't do it with my kids because I think you got to provide some moments. And, you know, dinner is a classical moment. We all have to stop. If we're all workaholics, I mean, we all have to stop to, to eat at least and have a moment. But, but sometimes I wonder on the weekends or, or, or you know, uh, maybe even if you come late from home, do you, you take a moment where you're together and you enjoy human contact? As simple as playing something together. Or, and uh, we, I think we allow life to roll over us and we're all too tired to engage in those things which are not productive sometimes or we are too tired of, of our own children, of taking them here and, 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 and teaching them. And, and then we don't stop. We don't party. We don't party with them. And uh, so they, they are not looking forward to party with us. And so if we provide enough moments of partying together as a family, healthy, you know, then probably they will want to behave in a good way, not because they want to be accepted, but because they want to be part of. They, want to, they don't want to spoil the moment. And uh, I don't know, this is something I'm, I'm thinking that can really be the, the root reason for children to, to want to change behavior. If, if the more they have a loving environment or a loving moment with their family, the more often it is, the healthier they will be. And uh, it takes time. Yeah. And, and I would say for the parents who, who can't do dinner, there's nothing magical necessarily about dinner. It's, it's a nice setup. It's nice 
But I think there are other ways that you can connect with your family to have those moments. Maybe it's a night out at the park where you're all playing together. Exactly. You know? um, and in nature, uh, when everyone can get together because we people work weird schedules and people eat, have weird diets these days and you know so on and so forth. So, but but yeah, taking some moment, I, I would agree. It's one of those sorts of things that you do so well in Argentina and Uruguay, uh, and they're just built into the culture um, that that we've lost to a great degree in in the U.S. Um, for certain. So no, it's okay. It's it's very good that you make the, the clarification. I'm sorry for my cultural bias, and this is something also because we have dinner very late. So everybody comes home from the yeah. office and then, yeah, and then they have dinner at maybe 9 p.m., 10 p.m. And that diff I understand the different schedules are different. But as you were saying, if it's not dinner, just create a moment. But there, there has to be a moment. Let's, let's get together. Let's read something together. Let's do something that is not all of us watching a show. But even that, sometimes it's a lot. Let's get the four of us, the three of us, however you're in the family, together and watch one show not because we all like it, but because it's something we all like somehow and we can spend the time together. Yeah. And I yeah. think those things are, are very important, you know, or as you were saying, okay, each one of us had dinner at different times, but maybe breakfast, or maybe we go for an ice cream to the local place and just, just to be together. And uh, it has a, an enormous amount of, of power over emotional stability and uh, it's the root cause love should be in the end the root motive to behave well not success not what other people say just just it's behaving well allows me to express and receive more love from the people i love yes yeah so bringing this back to emotion coaching i think if we help kids to identify their emotions in different situations but then also to empathize with others and identify their emotions in different mm -hmm. situations and to also be compassionate uh you know about what others are going through i think a lot of behavioral issues will work themselves out once kids are able to understand their own feelings the feelings of others uh and and, and to also be compassionate Uh, and so there will be more intrinsic motivation for the types of behaviors, the harmonious behaviors that we want to see from our children. Exactly. So, yeah. so I would I would love in this episode to talk about prevention, but we're getting a little bit along now. So uh, next episode, I propose that we discuss some prevention. Uh, so how do we prevent behavior issues? And And so we'll talk about things like listening to your children. Uh, sounds very obvious, but there's some things we need to discuss uh, that go along with that. Giving your kids uh, proper attention. And then let's talk about some lifestyle interventions and, and see where we can get with that because a lot of behavior issues can be worked out um, by improving sleep, by getting kids mm. proper exercise, um, by getting kids outside into nature, Uh, and and to uh, spend a decent amount of time outside in nature each day uh, to make sure that they are engaged in activities that are fun and interesting and to try to improve our relationship with, with kids. So that's a lot to talk about. We'll see how far we get. We'll talk about some prevention next week, but I, I want to um, summarize what we discussed today. We started with behaviorism techniques, which can stop the cycle of negative behaviors. So using positive reinforcement, which is perhaps the most powerful one and doing it intermittently, making sure we do it right after the behavior occurs to make sure it works. But then once we see the desired change shifting away from uh, things like positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement to our uh, positive discipline and our emotion coaching, which are the ideals of discipline that we uh, strive for always. We also talked about gentle discipline, which can be extremely effective in the moment. Uh, and we can redirect, as Axel mentioned, to meaningful um, things. And we also talked about uh, boundary-based discipline, those cause and effect uh, setups uh, that, that uh, make sense and works sometime, but maybe aren't as uh, ideal. And then we ended with our discussion about emotion coaching 
instilling in kids that understanding of the different emotions that they're feeling in, uh, in different during different events and to try to get them to empathize with other children and to be compassionate, something that will improve behavior in an organic way. So um, Axel, I told you I would let you do this. We need to start telling that jokes <laughs> at the end of our podcast to reward our listeners who have stuck with us all this way. Give it to me. It's Okay, okay. So because let's just give some explanation, you know, as, as an English, a non-native English speakers, I really enjoy these jokes because they allow me to, I don't know, they hit me harder because I'm not a native speaker. So I apologize if nobody else finds them funny. But having said that, you know, I'm renovating my house and um, the, the first floor is going great. Now the second one is a different story. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> also also something i learned is that you know how you call someone who doesn't have a body and doesn't have a nose what nobody knows Ooh. You, you, you wore out your welcome after the first one axel um, okay that's well, it enough for today you know we want some people to keep coming to this podcast and not be the last you, episode you have to wait until next week to tell another one of these jokes. Okay, I will, I will. All right. <laughs> Un abrazo. See everyone next week. Abrazo para todos. Bye-bye.